Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to episode 629 with my guest Bill W., a very important mentor in my life. And that is his uh, actual first name and, and, and last initial. And uh, I don't know why it's taken me so long to have him on the podcast, but um, a really, really important person in uh, in my life. My my life changed on July twenty first, two thousand and three, which is when I met him and uh, allowed somebody to begin to help me with my <laughs> some of my many issues. Uh, this podcast is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, I'm not a therapist. Uh, I'm just a human being doing the best I can. Thank you to those of you who have signed up for Patreon recently. Um, we could still use a lot more support. Uh, the link is patreon.com. I'm sorry, uh, patreon.com slash metalpod, and you can sign up for as little as a dollar uh, a month, and uh, any amount is greatly appreciated. Uh, you can also uh, shoot us money at Venmo. The Venmo handle is uh, metalpod, and metalpod also the website. Go there, fill out surveys. That's a great non-financial way of supporting uh, the podcast especially the loves and awful some moments and happy moments. Those, uh, those really make my day and I think really help bring some, some uh, light to uh, all the darkness. There is no shortage of darkness in the, uh, in the surveys. Uh, you can also, oh, I hate to be this person, subscribe because that helps improve the downloads and that helps uh, attract advertisers. Let's dive into some surveys. Oh, and the surgery went well. Had surgery uh, a week ago on uh, my shoulder. Thank you for uh, those of you that uh, uh, you know 
showed uh, concern, interest, whatever you want to call it. I feel really, really good. The pain is uh, almost non-existent. Um, and I'm super, super happy about that. This is from the Fears survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Mother of Dogs. And I believe we've read some surveys of, uh, of hers before. Uh, share something you fear. She writes, I fear that when I'm really old, say 94, I'm going to be so sick and weak. I'll be stuck in, at an elderly home where I'm not really taken care of and nobody listens to me, my needs, my thoughts, my story, and I'm all, all alone. All my friends are gone or in other elderly homes and other cities and countries, and I fear that I will feel so much pain for not making better life choices, that it will eat away all my sleep, and I'm afraid that I will just exist there at the end of life's path without someone who's there for me. Holy shit, did that one hit home for me. And I just want to add the one thing that you're not considering with the people that are uh, supposed to be taking care of, of you, there might be a language barrier. <laughs> because when I catastrophize about the end of my life, that one is always in there. I got a question from uh, somebody who wants to start their own support group. And um, I have never started my own support group. Uh, I do not attend support groups outside of 12-step-based things. So uh, I had to just kind of share whatever insights I've gleaned from people who have shared their uh, experiences in running a support group. Because in 12-step groups, um, there isn't a person in charge, uh, you know, air quotes, like there, you know, there are people that help run the meeting, but not people who control the meeting and what people say and, you know, stuff like that. Whereas in a non-12-step, that may be the case. Sometimes it's a therapist. Sometimes it's a, you know, just somebody who started the support group through an organization like uh, NAMI, uh, the National Alliance for Mental Illness. Um, the website for that, by the way, is NAMI.org. But anyway, um, my suggestion was check out NAMI and see if you can uh, start a support group through there. And and I said that I would imagine that there is an art to letting the meeting work out issues that come up, um, and and you know feeling that need to control things and keep it you know, quote unquote perfect. Because sometimes uncomfortable moments can be the most fruitful for introducing topics we hadn't thought of, because ultimately we're in support groups for enlightenment. I don't know why I had trouble pronouncing the word enlightenment. Uh, on how we react to difficulty, especially in our relationships and our negative self-talk. So that's my two cents on that. Uh, this is also from uh, Mother of Dogs. Oh, she, she went on a tear on the surveys. And this is from the Back in Time survey. Share a moment in your life where you wish you could go back in time and say something to yourself. Uh, she writes, ah, this is painful to think of because it brings up so much regret. 
I, I got to turn my volume down. This is fucking, that's a little too much of me. There we go. Uh, I was a singer when I was younger. My voice was good and I played the guitar, but my self-esteem was zero. And I remember one time I sang at this summer job I had where I sang a folk song to some tourists. In parentheses, I'm from Norway, so this was at this folk museum in Norway where I was working as a guide and sometimes I would sing to them. After I'd finished singing, this woman came up to me, a German tourist that came with this group that came to my town on cruise ships every summer. And she said, you have such a gift, your voice. You are such a bell. Never lose it. Never lose it. And I remember feeling startled. I didn't know what to do with her words. I said, thank you, of course, and smiled politely. But on the inside, I was devastated because I sort of felt she was right to some degree. I had a gift in my voice. But at the same time, very same time, I had no concept of my self-worth, and it left me startled. What the heck was I going to do with her advice? I remember thinking, how can I use my voice more? I'm no superstar artist, and I don't know how to become one. And since the year and since the year flew, I was busy figuring myself out, fighting my inner critic, getting an education, going to therapy for years, struggling with recurring issues with my relationship to my mother, and to rejection amongst several things. Now, I'm suddenly 35 years old, and I never sing anymore. So I signed up for this choir I used to sing in many years ago, but I got rejected because they had an age limit of 30 years old for new members, and it got me thinking, damn, where did my years go? My time, my voice. Why was I unable to take the German tourist woman's advice and get out of there and sing? Instead, I was busy with being worried. So if I could give myself advice, I would say to my 20-year-old self working at the Folk Museum, being startled uh, and with a, an angsty feeling in my stomach after the German lady truly saw me and said to me that I should sing, I would say to myself, don't worry. Just start from where you are. Don't let fear rule your path. Just sing every opportunity. Give your best to the moment and trust that that is enough. Love it. Take anything from nature and decide who you want to give it to. I would give the German tourist woman a small Norwegian gem of some sort from a mountain, and I would say thank you for being so kind to me when I was a very sad and insecure 20-year-old working as a tourist guide. Why would you choose this person and this gift? Because the gem symbolizes the core of my heart, which I before felt was lonely and lost, but she saw that it wasn't. The stone or gem would symbolize that she gave me that gift through saying what she said to me. That's beautiful. Thank you for that. This is uh, from the same survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Dustin Justin, the cornucopianator. I'm 
Share a moment in your life you wish you could go back in time and say something to yourself. I'll go with the 17-year-old me. I would empathetically tell me that I've definitely got ADHD and to get medicated and that this will dramatically change your life. Honestly, I'd also have an elevator pitch of key points to optimize my impact talking to the young me. Uh, The family is not well. Taking space from them in every sense is okay. Same goes for any other relationship. You can live your life with or without their jabs and muzzles. Stick with martial arts. Working harder is actually much easier and much more enjoyable because of all it affords you. Learn languages now, just a little bit, day by day. You can live a quiet life. You get to feel safe. You get to have fun and be surrounded by people who care about you and treat you well. And of course, buy Facebook stock, Bitcoin, etc. McFly! Exclamation point. Take anything you want from nature and decide who you want to give it to. The tongue... Tunguska event, in parentheses, a 12-megaton meteor airburst explosion at five to six kilometers over Siberia in 1908. Who, who would I give it to? Several bullies from over the years. I figure that would really help my inner six to 39-year-old deal with some significant blockages. Why would you choose this person and gift? Because I'm mad. Pick a positive moment in your day. Use all your senses. What did you see, feel, smell, and think? When the neighbor's puppy, my little buddy, was outside when I left to run errands, and I got to feed her a treat and pet her through the fence. Love it. If you could have any superpower, what would it be, and what would you do with it? The ability to control and read other people's minds. Sounds creepy, but you could basically just expose horrible humans as a full-time job and probably change the course of civilization. Or the power of flight would be rad because you could always be in so many different parts of the world whenever you felt like it. You could also pick up bad people and drop them in the ocean or on the pavement, etc., If you had that superpower, is there something you're afraid might happen? Yeah, getting kidnapped by government agents and carved up for science, obviously. Thank you for that. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living? as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. A must-read for anyone in medicine, from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, 
The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself LD. And she writes, I don't have many close friendships. Having mental illness and also being a 34-year-old woman without children makes me feel like an outsider a lot of the time. I have a tendency to isolate or to not ask for what I need from others because I feel unworthy for taking up space in their busy and vibrant lives. But on Friday, my friend slash roommate from college, who I'm still very close to, but don't see that often for the reasons I just stated, texted me and said, Hi, I got a babysitter for tomorrow and I would love to come see you and maybe we could go out to dinner if you feel up for it. I feel like this may seem very normal to most people, but I guess it just felt so good to feel worthy and wanted and special enough for a very busy friend to hire a babysitter and make the effort to drive 30 minutes to spend the evening with me. I'm almost always the one to initiate plans in all of my friendships, and I can't quite articulate how affirming it is to be on the receiving end. We had a lovely dinner and ordered three different desserts to go and came back to my tiny, quiet apartment. While I had a moment of feeling self-conscious that my home lacks the kind of warm, messy, boisterous energy that I feel when I'm at her in her home with her two young kids and dogs running around, she immediately flopped onto the sofa like it was our old dorm room and let out a huge, comfortable sigh of relief and said, Ah, this is heaven. Yes, my life may be boring and feel lonely at times, but I guess it's rather peaceful. And it turned out to be just what a friend with a lively but chaotic life was craving. I guess connection doesn't always have to come from having the same circumstances. It can come from sharing glimpses in the opposite ways of life and helping to give one another the parts that we are missing in our own. Love it. Speaking of loves, this is from the Love Survey filled out by Borderline But Brave, and they write, I love how productive and happy I become the day after having a serious depression episode and want to unalive myself. I just cleaned my whole apartment while dancing. Funny how BPD works sometimes. Yesterday, I was in the emergency room ready to be admitted. My consciousness might be disintegrated heavy weighted blanket on my brain symptomatically and i can't think straight things present themselves for a reason and i can't see straight i couldn't even drive the first movie that i remember watching with him post-traumatic stress when i was like five years old was pulp fiction <laughs> and moral injury i would act out the scenes gonna go to hell or with my barbies <laughs> The greatest source of our suffering Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens Is our willingness to experience and accept our emotions It is very hard to heal in dark isolation I developed compassion It is in connection and community where that happens The process was nearly unbearable Like, I'm gonna have to kill myself 
We'll be right back after this. <laughs> I'm here with my, uh, I don't know, what do I, what, what do I even call you? Bill, uh, his, his name is, is Bill W. Oh, really? We're going to, we're going to start like that. I would have thought that you would have had this all figured out with these amazing accolades and you're, you're like stuttering into this. Yeah. Could you kick it up a notch, I'm, please? I'm, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm a little intimidated. <laughs> <laughs> Bill was the very first guy to reach his hand out to me at my first support group meeting, July 21st, 2003. And to, to say that Bill is an instrumental person in my life is a vast understatement. You're, uh, you've been my Sherpa for, for almost... 20 years and very uh, humbly accept that, that uh, office. Yeah. Do you remember the day that you, you stuck your hand out or was that just another uh, sad face in the crowd? You know, it was another sad face. It really was. It was actually pathetic. Um, you know, and if I hadn't been jacked up, on coffee, I probably would have never talked to you. I, yeah, I mean, don't don't start thinking that like you know I had these good intentions and that I was you know working a good support program. Uh, you know, no, that wasn't it at all. No, I didn't want anything to do with you really. But uh, I think I was drinking coffee for about two hours before that. It just kind of was knee jerk. <laughs> uh, I remember what you said. You said, uh, "My name is Bill. How can I?" How can I help you? And uh, you know, you know, it's funny. It, it, it's like when you think back uh, on things like that, and you know, the older I get, the more stuff like that becomes clear in my mind when it comes out. You know, but yeah, I remember it exactly. And uh, yeah, man, nothing new. I mean, we were all there, you know, in that exact same uh, same spot. So. Uh, no, nah. it's just funny how the ball gets rolling, isn't it? And in that moment, the newcomer thinks that their story is so unique, and that nobody understands. And I got to tell you everything. Yeah, the, the the tell us everything. Thank God we didn't we didn't get into that. But uh, no, it, it's like there's no mystery. It's like because everybody has been in that exact same spot, you know. So, uh, but a lot of it is when you see someone and, you know, they've got that look that it's kind of hard to describe. It's like that look that, you know, I need some help, you know. One of the things that, drew me to you, especially in that moment, was your energy, your your eye contact was direct, your eyes were clear, you seemed confident, and you had a momentum to you. You had been sober about a year at that point, and um, I thought, this guy doesn't seem to be bullshitting that his life is working and he is, for the most part, comfortable in his skin. 
Um, you know, I, it's like at that point for me, it's like, you know, timing in life, I think, is just kind of everything. You know, when we arrive at certain places in our life, certain situations, the one that you're bringing up now, and what actually brought us there and what's happened to us to be at that place at that time, you know. Um, no, it's just no more than, uh, you know, I had been where you were at a year before. And at that point, because of, because I'd been trying to do the, you know, this stuff for a while and have been unsuccessful. Um, and I had gotten a moment of clarity, which kicked me into a realm that I had never been before. And I can't really describe it, but I changed like in a moment where something happened to me where I understood why I was there and what I had to do. And because I had been trying for a while. When you say there, you mean at your bottom or at a meeting for help? Both. You know, it they, it kind of happened at the same time, you know, um, because I had been trying to do this for a while. Mm-hmm. You know, when it happened, it's like I understood things that I had understood before that I, I didn't really get because I was this ex-pro athlete that would always work out my way through being down. Um, but after 20 years of trying to figure that one out, I don't know, the momentum, so to speak, wasn't really, uh, you know, on a good note. So at that moment, when that moment, when that clarity hit me, um, it was a realization and a complete surrender. To the idea that what? To the idea that unless I was all in, it wasn't going to work. And what, what would not working look like? Not being all in. Because I had tried it for so long, everything else... Once, you know, the dust clears, mm-hmm. then old habits come in and, you know, sloth and not wanting to commit and, you know, all those things that bring a lot of us to these programs mm-hmm. starts to raise its head again. But what would it look like in your life? What would your life look like if you weren't all in? Well, now it would probably have been more of the same. But what happened was not being all in, I had gotten a real good understanding of that for 20 years and nothing happened. You know, it was just kind of the same old procrastination, the same old getting started, uh, the kind of the way my life just looked like just and, and no success as far as really anything went because there was always this problem. That was, I was just kept shooting myself in the foot over and over and over again. And life always wanted to be there and, and give me something. And I wouldn't allow it to stick. And what would it look like 
when things would spiral out of control, when you would relapse. And, and cocaine was your your drug of choice. It was. What it would look like is I wanted out. I loved it. I didn't do it. You wanted out of reality. I, I did. I wanted back in the comfort zone, or at least what I I perceived as my comfort zone, where I could hide for days at a time and jump back in there. And I guess really now that I look back on it, I never really wanted to grow up. I don't, and it's like, I always wanted to crawl back into that safe spot of, that would keep me, you know, in the, in the zone of safeness for two, three days at a time. Then I'd come out from that and everything would be terrible again. And would you be up for, for two, three days oh, yeah. at, at a time? Oh yeah, baby. Yeah, looking for day four and five, if I could. That's just the nature of the of the thing. And would you mostly be doing it by yourself? Uh, yeah. You know, um, or with, you know, some interesting companions. Okay. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it was just always kind of crawling back into that. And, uh, you know, um with as i said with that moment then what happened is i realized two things for myself and in that moment things became clear on two fronts for me number 1 for the first time in 20 years i finally actually really realized that if i didn't get sober i was going to have a, a really terrible life and i was still fairly young at the time you know um i think then i was in my mid 40s you know almost 50 and I uh, always kept myself in good health and good shape. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I really understood that my life was going to be terrible from there on in. And number two, for me, I realized that I needed to be alone because I was always in a relationship mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, always I wanted her around, you know, just to make me feel good and make everything all right. And they were usually on about the three to five year plan with me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, 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 they saw some potential and it started getting tarnished very heavily about during the two to three year period. So, but I, I realized I needed to be alone for a while and I needed to make the, the next part of my life. I needed to be all in and I needed to make that the most important thing in my life. And one of the things that, uh, you, you had done was, you inherited your dad's paint store. He passed away when you were what a teenager? Um, no, I was in my early tw- early to mid twenties. Okay, yeah. And uh, you kind of chipped chipped away at that through. Was it mostly spending money on cocaine? Was it not working and giving it the focus it it deserved? Um, you know, I, I I did I did give it the focus it deserved for three four years, and then things got very good. And I kind of created this lifestyle where I was living out out at the beach and life was really good. And then because things were all clicking on all cylinders, um, I started kind of like moving into a little bit more of the direction, mm-hmm. you know, of the, of the abuse direction. Mm-hmm. And then eventually it just, you know, it was gone. Yeah. And uh, yeah, but you know, that was, you know, another, 10, 13, 14 years down the road until I, it started clicking in. But, um, yeah, I mean, 
it's I'm just very grateful that number one it did, and then when it did, mm-hmm. I was <clears throat> for the first time in my life, I was all in in something, and you know when 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 I got to that point, it, there was a lot of freedom that was involved in being all in. Um, there was a lot of, um, you know, I mean, I've told you this before and I've told a lot of our guys this before, but you know, I always use this, this adage of this old, this metaphysician, Joseph Campbell, when he was alive, he said that when you commit to something really totally commit to something because the universe will send magical guides to assist you on your way. And that's what happened to me. Once I was all in, the right people showed up, the right meetings showed up, the right um, commitments showed up, and the ball got rolling. And uh, it's funny how that happens. I mean, it's not funny, but it's it's really fun to be a part of that. It's, a, it's an amazing feeling. To, to, to feel that all in. And then as you're going through it, you kind of look around and you kind of see this happening, but it's almost, you, you got to like look over your shoulder and 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 down the line a while and go wow it just all fell into place and worked out yeah and sometimes you don't even see it until you look in hindsight yeah it, it's interesting I mean it's like th- you know we can always find no matter where our life's at something wrong with what's going on right now you know and I was actually just talking to a guy on the phone and I've told you guys this all the time that ultimately it's like no matter what. If I just do the deal and stay committed to it and stay, for me, sober, everything always works out. I mean, I, lo- I look in the, you know, over my shoulder and almost 21 years later, it always works out. Always. Isn't it amazing that the, the biggest hurdles in our lives aren't the events themselves? And I'm talking mostly about sobriety. But the fear that things might happen that we're not going to like. Yeah, but that's human nature, you know, I think. Don't you? I mean, I think I think we're born. It's like I don't know anything that's ever come up in my life and I'm going, oh, that ain't going to happen. No, it's always like the opposite. It's like I always go to the worst case scenario, the fear part of it. I think as addicts, though, it grips us harder. And I think our self-obsession tends to go deeper than other people. I, you know, I think it's one of the things that drives the cycle of using is, you know, we don't want to feel what we're feeling. So we reach for the thing that anesthetizes us. And then we feel shame about having anesthetized ourselves and fucked our lives up even more. So we need to get out of that pain that we've just added another layer to. Well, you know, the same guy I was just talking to before I came over here, I said, you know, it's like I'm at a point in my life right now where I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much tired of beating myself up. You know, I think we come in here with credentials that it's not only our nature, which I think what you just said, I, I, I totally go along with. But I think it's just where we've come from. You know, nobody usually gets into a self-help program by mistake. You know, we've all earned our, our, our past to get in there. And unfortunately, what, what, what comes with that over the years and years 
is not doing things right and not showing up and beating ourselves up and seeing other people move on and we're not. So we have this assumption of ourselves that there's something wrong with us. And when something comes up and it doesn't even have to be that much, it's like, here we go again. I'm bad. I'm doing this wrong. Did that happen to me today? You know, just out of the blue. It's like I got up in the morning, I was having coffee, and these old thoughts came in about thoughts that I used to use over. And sometimes they get very hypnotic. For instance? Like sexual thoughts, Mm -hmm. you know, on what drives me out. You know, old thoughts. Um, Whatever they might be. And then they just kind of get a life of their own. And it was fascinating. It's like I, I I was actually not even part of what was going on. And right away, it's like I want to, because it's like I was just getting ready to meditate. Mm-hmm. And right away, I think to myself, I'm, I'm a bad person. I can't meditate. It's like, how can I do that after, you know, my mind going there? And I thought to myself, you know what? F this. The book tells me that I can start my day over anytime I want. I'm starting it over. <laughs> and I did. And I'm not taking this anymore because I'm not perfect, but I can start rewiring it anytime. And I did this morning. It was actually like a really fun thing because it didn't grip me and become a part of my day. I just, I moved on and it's like, and it was actually kind of a a nice little victory. And here I am getting a caffeine buzz, hanging out with you. (laughs) (laughs) I I had the, a, a similar, um, not a sexual thought, but a self-defeating thought this morning. I was laying in bed, and uh, I just thought to myself, I'm soft. I don't have what it takes to reach the finish line, not staying alive, but having a, a life that that works financially, that I, I, I'm going to sputter out, and I'm going to be uh in poverty when i should be you know in my 70s uh looking at being able to retire and i really started spiraling down with that with that thought um comparing myself to other generations people that you know went through world war 2 and started their own business and worked 12 hours a day and i'm like I'm just fucking soft. God, I hope you got a cup of coffee on that one real quick. <laughs> God. <laughs> it feels so real in that moment. It's crazy, isn't it? How that can come up. It it just, uh, it's fascinating. But hopefully, you know, it's like as time goes on mm-hmm. and the more that we are conscious and deal with that type of scenario. Hopefully when those things come back, you know, come up in the future, like they did for me today, I'm not holding on to them quite so tight. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I don't want to go there anymore. Life is short. I'm tired of like, you know, hanging out there and beating myself up. And I think that just takes, it's just good work habits. And that's the nice thing that we have, like with each other and and the people that we hang with as we talk about that 
and we share our victories with each other on how we get and circumvent things like that, um, hopefully it helps us when that does come up again, and it will, for us. I th- I think that's one of the things that people don't understand who've never been a su- in a support group. They think, why do you have to go every week or multiple times a week? And I think they don't understand the insidious nature of going down the rabbit hole and that we need to be reminded by other people's successes and the tools that they use to get through those difficult moments that that that's what the key is really about is is perspective i you know i think addiction one of its most cancerous qualities is how it distorts or destroys perspective i agree i mean you know i'm I'm a fitness trainer i mean i always liken that what you're talking about like going to the gym i mean why do people go to the gym every day i mean it's pretty obvious this is really no different you know um it's just you know you it's being I don't know. It seems the people that I see in life that are consistently showing up and that are consistently engaging. And for me, you know, I'm getting older. It seems like you're 71, 71. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it seems like for me, it just seems that in our environment that we live in right now, it's harder to do that because we're not socially engaged. Like we used to be, at least what I remember. And it's like, you know, staying socially engaged, especially as you start getting busy, your commitments or family and being consistent with that and keeping that part of your life energized and healthy, whether it's physical or emotional or addiction wise or whatever that is. Um, it's like I always say my favorite people are people that work, you know, people that work know how to lean in and do, you know, and those people I'm not saying that, you know, not work, whatever. I'm saying those people that I view tend to have successful lives, you know? So, you know, kind of keeping on it, staying engaged, staying part of, staying in the process, getting good routines, you know, um, I think is is huge. Let's talk about the uh, thing that's – it seems to be fucking with you lately because when we spend time around each other, uh, when the topic of sports comes up, your career in baseball kind of uh, not going where you wanted it to be. You were drafted by the Orioles when you were, what, 19 years old? Um, I was actually drafted by Houston. Um, when I was, yeah, 18 or 19 mm-hmm. in the first round back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And then I was drafted in the second round. I didn't sign with them with uh, the Orioles. And I wound up playing with them. Because mm-hmm. uh, there was a summer draft and a winter draft. So right. you were originally right. in one draft. And then- you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty on how things work out. But, you know, you and I have talked about this. It was just, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, I was so excited and all in. And things 
went so well for me so quickly. You know, in my first um, full year, I played in a half-year league. In my first full year, I was all-star catcher of the league, and they invited me to Major League Camp when I was 19. And I was like their top prospect coming up. And what happened after that was they put me in AAA league at 19. I was the youngest guy in the whole league, and they sat me on the bench where I should have gone right into like double A and started playing every day. And had you ever sat on the bench? No. I mean, it's like, you know, you play, um, but I didn't play at all. They they brought in some guy that was like five, six years older than me, and he played every game, and I was there for a month. And it's what happens when, when I went back down, and I had a great spring that year too. I was with the major league team. I went down to the AAA team. I was playing great. And and the whole thing just put like a it just stopped me in my tracks, and I went down. I wound up hurting my arm um, when I went down, and it and I went back the year the the next year to the to the A league that I did really well in, and it was pretty much all downhill from there. So you know, accepting that, I mean, I I, I accept it. It was a good experience. You know, a lot of people don't even get to do that. I mean, I've got a lot of great stories about you know hanging out with the major leaguers when I was nineteen that I always admired. You know, when I was growing up, um, but I mean, I, I don't think I'll ever stop wondering if I, if things, you know, if I went right into and kept playing, and I was like, mm-hmm. what would have happened? So it would have been nice because you would have destroyed your life with cocaine on a bigger stage. Well, you and know, that would it, have been fun to watch because there would have been film of it. Yeah, I mean, it's like we've got got some good, good, you know, good uh, people that have done that. But you know what? I didn't really get into cocaine, and for another. 10 years, you know, but, uh, and thankfully there's not cocaine in major league sports. <laughs> it was interesting too. I mean, I, I don't want to get off into an, you know, into another time, but it's like, you know, when I was getting it, I, I was hearing about major leaguers that were getting, I mean, it was so prevalent in the seventies. We didn't really know the corrosive nature. No, of and then cocaine. the eighties too. I mean, it was just, it was just crazy, yeah. but, um, you know what? It's like it, when it comes up, yeah, it puts a little, you know, little bite in me but you know i mean I've, I've kind of gone there so many times it's like i think it, more than anything it just would have been interesting to see if the momentum had kept going what would have happened that's all and i think that's that's one of the hardest things in uh sobriety is dealing with the shoulda coulda wouldas and and i don't know about you but that's when i need to connect to some benevolent force in the universe that I feel like is an architect and, and remember I'm the bricklayer. Yeah. But look back on your life. I mean, in sobriety, was there any shoulda, coulda, I mean, I mean, your life has worked out beautifully since you've been sober. Really? Hasn't it? It has. Yeah. So it's like, let's go back to where we were before. It's like once, it, it, and the people that I see that get into this type of situation that you and I are in, that lean into it and make it work, their lives work for the most part. And it's like, you know, I can remember before I, I got sober, I was madly in love with this girl and we were engaged. And, you know, I was a couple of years sober and I started using and she left me. Now I look back on my life now and I've been married like 12, 13 years and you know what? It all worked out so well. You know, I always tell people it's like the life that I'm living right now. It's like, 
this is the life that I've always wanted. You know, it just really is. It just, it just worked out. Is is it perfect? No, nothing is. But it's so good. It's crazy. And the things that aren't perfect, I've learned how to, how to, you know, get into the ground of acceptance and back off and get out of my selfishness in big ways in my life to, so that I don't screw it up. And I think that's one of the things that is such a struggle is to not misconstrue, misconstrue imperfection for fucked. And I think that that is one of the things that it helps being around a group of people every week is to give us that perspective that you're just a human being. Yeah, there are hills and valleys in, in our lives, but that valley doesn't mean it. it's all gone to shit and it's doom. Well, you and I go to go to a lot of men's meetings, you know, and we've gone to a couple of them for years. Yeah. And, you know, in accordance of, with what you're saying right now, it's absolutely true in the sense of you watch other people, like we know people that have had cancer and lost their teeth and 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 recovered and been healthy and gone on to get married and people that have been divorced but have gone on to a better marriage and showed up for whatever if there was chill I mean and, and showed up in their lives and took care of things. It's like you watch other people watch go through the struggles that they do. And as they go through them, um, for me, it just gives me that much more hope that, I mean, no matter what's going on with me, I mean, I've got so many examples of people that I can think about or call that have gone through much worse than I have. And what they kept doing was the right thing, put one foot in front of the other, and it all worked out. You know, speaking of the, the men's meetings, when Bill first started helping me and, and guiding me, um, one of the things you said to me was a requirement if we were going to work together was that I go to at least one men's meeting a week and you were going to the Thursday night meeting, which I talk a lot about on the podcast and how deeply it's helped me. But when I first started going, I did not like it. I didn't know anybody. I sat in the back with my arms folded, resentful that nobody was calling on me to share that nobody knew my name. And as you and I began to do the work, uh, me really looking at my life and my character defects and my patterns of behavior, one of the things that I saw was my biggest fear was, was being forgettable, having a forgettable life, not being interesting enough. And I realized that, yeah, would it be great if people – uh, you know, were coming up to me every Thursday night and saying, hey, what's your name? Tell me about yourself. But they weren't. And so one of the things that I needed to do was reach my hand out and introduce myself, as uncomfortable as that was. And one of the most important decisions I ever made in my life was just showing up to the dinner before the meeting next door at the, at the, the Lebanese restaurant and within three weeks, people knew my name, were calling on me, and I was like, this is the greatest meeting ever. And that just shows me, again, the distorted perspective when we allow reality to be filtered 
through our disease, no matter what it is, whether it's negative self-talk or an addiction. You know, when I think it's important, too, for us, you know, when we get in here to find someone to be our, to help guide us in the beginning, that we trust. Because it's like, if we want what they have, like I do what my mentor tells me to do, because I want what he has. I trust him, you know, and as we learn and we go out on a limb and trust people and do what they say and say, you might want to consider, you know, you know, using that sense of humor of yours and lighten the F up there, mm-hmm. pal. You can say fuck. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and you know, it's just, it really isn't life really, I look at, doesn't life really boil down to showing up? I mean, really? I mean, how many times did you go to school your first few days of school and you were scared shitless? And then the next, next couple of weeks, it's like you're out, you know, it's like nobody's no big deal. Yeah, it's just showing up, you know, and I think that's uh, that's what they tell us to do. You know, one of, one of my favorite moments that that you share in your recovery is when you made that phone call to I think it was Philip. Uh, you were a couple of years into your sobriety, six months. Yeah, share that moment. Um, you know when I first came in it's like you know i was talking earlier about how when you commit to something you know the universe will send magical guys to assist you on your way and what they did for me was uh, uh, introduce me to three four guys that became kind of my group that took me under their wing and i became close to and up to that point it's like i don't know if i've ever really had guys that would go out on the limb for me or bust my chops but these guys I wound up trusting, you know, and about six months of sobriety, I wanted to use. And I was hanging out with these guys. And uh, one thing that I never did before when I was in situations like that was I would never call anybody. When you wanted to use. Yeah. And I trusted these people. And I think what a lot of it boiled down to, too, is it wasn't important to me to look good. You know, the, the that's really kind of came with the surrender of being all in. And then obviously on top of it, trusting these people. And I called this guy up my, at, my, at the time, my friend Phil. And I told him, I says, you know, I just uh, called my drug dealer. And I told him that, you know, um, I told him, let's let me get back to you. And the first thing he said to me was, well, this must have been a really hard call to make to call me and it was over. I did. I didn't do it. You know, um, he was kind, you know, and it allowed me to not take that action and move on. And sometimes it's like, you know, that's all we need. You know, we just need to get over that little blip and we need help getting over it how that happens for people and when that happens and, you know, if that happens and, you know, I I don't know. I don't know how it all works, man. And then I can remember one other time where these guys that I was hanging with, I had shared something with them because we always went out to dinner on Thursday night before we went to our meeting. 
and it was uncharacteristic for me what I shared with them. And the next day I was in a meeting and two of these guys came in and pulled me out of the meeting. Now, nobody's ever done that to me before. And they say, we're worried about you because that's not like you to exhibit that kind of behavior. Specifically, what kind of behavior was it? I don't want to talk about it. Okay. Um, but the behavior that was uncharacteristic for me. Okay. And uh, and they took me to lunch and we sat down and we talked and they were said, we're we're here for you. We're concerned about you. And you see, it's like you start getting in a group of people like that. It's, uh, you're lucky. You're lucky to help keep you on, on the path, you know? I think one of the most important questions I want to ask you is, is that fart you or Gracie? That's Gracie. Because Jesus Christ, that, that smells like she ate a bulb of garlic. Um, well, you would know that better than I. Yeah. Yeah. Now, is this actually going to go on the uh, recording? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Is this, no, wait, let's just backtrack just a second here. Is, it, is this where you finally start displaying a little bit of that sense of humor of yours? No, no. I'm yeah, because you can actually kick that up a notch if, if you don't mind there, pal. <laughs> I think one of the, uh, Bill and I work out a couple of times uh, a week, and I always tell him, I don't think there is any time in my week I laugh as hard as I do. One of the things, one of my favorite things about you is when I walk up your driveway and Bill's got the equipment in his garage and always music playing and you're dancing to some song and not just dancing, but dancing in a ridiculously old white guy way that is usually totally inappropriate for the song, but well, we somehow see, first of all, what, what, it's not totally inappropriate. Yeah, I'll be the judge you know, of that. It's, it's like, you just don't unfortunately appreciate it. It's like my moves are solid brother. Yeah. You're just not quite getting it is the problem. Yeah. What can I tell you? You know, you know, actually what I could tell you, just keep showing up. <laughs> yeah. Just keep showing up. And as we say, amongst my friends, more will be revealed. Yeah. But yeah, I love you. Anything <laughs> Anything else you want to share before uh, before we wrap up? I feel like there's so much stuff we could talk about, but I'm a little tired of you at this point. <laughs> no, I've never done, never, of course, you know, I've never done this on your show. And this, I don't know, man, whenever I get together with you, it's like, it's just, you know, one of the nice things about the things, the thing that we, the self, the the thing that we're involved in is the relationships that you, you know, get with people and the time that you spend with them and watching them, you know, just evolving in a healthy, you know, way that people are trying to do the right thing, you know. And uh, you just can't, you know, really kind of, you know, really describe that. I mean, what a really nice, healthy, good thing that is in today's world. So, love you, man. I love you too, Paul. I didn't mean that when I said that. I've had enough of his bullshit. What, uh, man, I feel so blessed to have uh, the people in my life that I do. I would have never imagined that I would feel the depth of connection that I feel in my life. Just amazing. 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Let's dive into some surveys. Is that uh, is it too soon? This is, a, this is filled out as a happy moment, and I'm not sure why, but... Uh, this is filled out by a guy who calls himself, fuck the word fiance, uh, fiance, spelled a different way, can fuck off too. Share one or two happy moments. Half an hour ago, I sent an email to a girl I thought I wanted to marry only a few months ago. In my email, I asked her to send me videos of her fucking other men. Not a totally weird request since she used to do that for money. Yes, I was in love with a sex worker. Until I saw her with another man, until I saw her take a dick in her mouth that wasn't mine. I'm not sure why my brain went wacko when I saw her pleasing another man. She'd been pretty upfront about everything till that point, but still that incident caused a breakdown in me. I cut all contact with her. I started drinking. I started a three-week-plus depression spiral that had me taking new meds, in the parentheses, with alcohol, and fighting off thoughts of jumping out of my apartment window. And something really weird. I started watching videos of her, in parentheses, readily available online, pleasing other men. The thing that caused a total breakdown before was now feeding a strange fetish, in parentheses, cuckold maybe, question mark, and getting me off time after time. Now, I find myself wanting more. I'm going out of my way to get the dirtiest, filthiest porn that she has created. It makes no sense, or does it, question mark. I've always been a confused fella. All I know is I really miss the days when pinball and a cheeseburger would bring me the ultimate satisfaction. Wow, that is intense, man. And uh, I think that would be a good thing to talk to a therapist or people in a support group about because there's nothing wrong with having a fetish. It's, you know, the question, is this interfering with my life? Is this harming my spirit? And it kind of sounds like it is. And that it's such a mindfuck when the intensity of an orgasm seems to outweigh the corrosive nature of the subject matter and how it affects our lives, if it does affect our lives. 
There's nothing a hot orgasm can't fuck up. Should I put that on a t-shirt? This is uh, from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Dave. He identifies as straight. He's in his 40s. Uh, says that he was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Never been sexually abused, but he's been physically and emotionally abused. He writes, my mother was a schizophrenic. I did not know until I was an adult. As a result, my childhood was full of emotional abuse, all, although not in a way that is common. She was heavily sedated through most of my youth and adolescent years, so it was more neglect. My father did not have the guts to leave her and had grown tired of dealing with me, uh, a very angry and angsty youth, so he stayed away as much as possible. When he was around, fighting, uh, when he was around, fighting was going to happen. Verbal arguments between myself and him, and between him and my mother, and between myself and my mother. Up until I was near a teenager, it was common to be hit with a belt by my father. Some people do not consider this abuse, although I never knew what I was going to say to set this in motion. I thought this was normal behavior until I was into my 30s and sober. Any positive experiences with abusers? My father and I had a decent relationship up until I was 11. Although he hit me a lot with belts, we spent a fair amount of time doing recreation like fishing and hiking until about the age of 11. Darkest thoughts. Not being alive. I'm not suicidal, but I often wonder why I can't just be dead. Darkest secrets. Honestly, this is mostly crimes for me. I've committed a lot of crimes that, despite never having been arrested. I have never done things to harm anyone. I have no secrets about things that have happened to me. I once pepper sprayed a cop in a crowded bar. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. My sexual fantasies change by the minute. One minute, it's about sharing my wife in a three-way with another dude. Other times, it's having sex with a barely legal, small-chested adult woman. Other times, it's finding a jerk-off buddy. I have no issues sharing this anonymously. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Uh, To my wife, just to understand how depressed I really am. What, if anything, do you wish for? For my lifelong depression to go the fuck away. Have you shared these things with others? Some of this. I talk to my counselor about most everything except the sexual stuff. How do you feel after writing these things down? Meh. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Sorry. Seriously sorry to know others feel this way. I know others do. Thank you for filling that out. And man, depression is just... uh, There's there's really, when it's not being managed, there's nothing that it doesn't seem to affect Sending you some love, man. And speaking of love, this is from the love survey filled out by Beetle. And they write, I love when I am grumpily doing the dishes and the dumb liquid dish soap explodes out a million tiny bubbles when I squeeze it too quickly and I can't help but feel a reality check and laugh. I love when I'm taking a bath or pooping and my phone dies and I am forced to read a physical magazine. God, I can't even remember the last time I was in a bathroom that had physical magazines in them. Thank you for that. 
This is uh, from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself can't sleep, can't stop sleeping. Man, is that a t-shirt? Holy shit. <laughs> Do a lot of us relate to that. She identifies as bisexual. She's in her 20s. Uh, she says that she was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Uh, she was a victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, most of my life is a blur, pre-teenage years, and I know it's because somewhere in there, there are memories that I'm not ready to process. Logically, I'm aware of what happened, but I can't approach it. It's like a dark corner in my brain with a flickering light bulb that just won't stay lit. Oh my God, that's such a good analogy. Uh, ever been physically or emotionally abused? Uh, she writes, my father cheated on my mother for years. He would take me to the woman's house and make me run laps in the fields while he did whatever he did. Holy fuck. Does that count as multitasking your dad being, being a dual dick at the same time? That is so fucked up. He would lie to my mother and tell her he took me to a movie or to lunch and just expect me to lie for him. And I did, because it was the only time he spent time with me or seemed proud of me. He has never stopped being disgusted by me for being overweight. I can see it in his eyes, even now as I'm an adult. He pushed me to starve, and my mother pushed me to overeat. And I know he hates that she won. I binge and binge until I feel full. And then starve myself until I feel clean and empty and then swap back and forth. I don't know what else to even say, but all these thoughts and feelings flooding my brain are too much for me to handle. And I don't know how long I can hold on to that rope tethering me to being a functioning human before I snap. Any positive experiences with abusers? My father only loved me when I lied for him or lost weight. Oh, my God. Can you imagine that as a T-shirt? Oh, my God. He withheld affection unless it was an effort to win me from my mother's side. But when he was happy with me, things were great. I think he has his own set of mental health issues that he avoids, you think? And he could flip instantly from attempting to bond to shouting and angry and slamming doors and then freezing me out for weeks at a time. I was a child. And he would pretend I didn't exist as punishment. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. That is so fucked up. What a mind fuck. Darkest thoughts. One of my friends killed himself a few years ago, and I still think about him every day. Not because I miss him or because I wish he was back, but because I'm jealous that he found a way out and I'm too much of a coward to follow. Oh, man. I hate when people call themselves cowards for not following through on ending their lives, but I'm not going to try to tell you what to say or think. It just uh, pains me to uh, know that people have that, that attitude. Darkest secrets. I've been dating my boyfriend since I was 17. I am intensely codependent and hate myself anytime he spends time with anyone but me. 
I punish myself when he gives his attention to co-workers, friends, family, even if I'm not around for him to pay attention to. I'm under constant, unbearable fear that he will leave me or cheat on me or that secretly he hates me and is disgusted by me, even though he's a fucking saint and acts like he adores me. But I know that no one could love me, so it has to be something else. Well, my God, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, Dr. Alan Rappaport says in this brilliant article he has about being the child of a narcissist is that we tend to view, um, we believe that, People outside our va- family view us the way the narcissistic parent did. And so uh, how could you not have that lurking fear that your partner is going to cheat on you? Um, which to me uh, is, you know, uh, I hope will be an impetus for you to get help and to process the feelings that are inside your body about the horrible shit that your dad did. Uh, Continuing, and while I feel all of these things and live in sheer terror that he'll so much as glance at someone else for a second longer than I can stand, I'm so desperate for men's approval and affection that I flirt and talk to men online, needing to feel like anyone could want me, even though I've been with my boyfriend for eight years now. I don't want these other men. I just want them to want me because it's the only time I don't hate myself. In the duration of my relationship with my boyfriend, I've been sexually assaulted once and raped twice and he has no idea. And it was by a good friend and co-worker and I had to keep going back to work every day and pretending everything was normal. Oh my God. Wow. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Rape, incest, violence. I flinch if someone so much as lifts a hand too quickly in front of me, but it's all that gets me off. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone that you haven't been able to? I wish I could ask my parents if they love me or tell them how much they've ruined me or tell my mother that when she saw the slashes in my wrist when I was young and accidentally changed a jacket in front of her, that she had a chance to help and she instead chose to believe that they were all an accident. How clumsy of me. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish that I could feel love from someone, anyone. There's a look in my therapist's eyes when she is upset on my behalf because I don't know how to express emotion and I wish I could feel those things I see in her eyes. Have you shared these things with others? I see my therapist weekly for depression and anxiety, but I am too closed off and afraid to open up too far. How do you feel after writing these things down? Overwhelmed and lost and flooded with so many more things to say and sick that I can't get them out. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I hope it gets better, but I haven't seen any evidence of that yet, and I hope they're not as good at hiding it as I am because that makes it so much harder to handle. Wow. Thank you for going so deep on all this stuff, and you know, my thought is if you can go deep writing this out, 
I think there's a chance that you can go deep in verbalizing this with your therapist and maybe just taking baby steps, maybe just a, just a little bit, one session. Um, I don't know, but, uh, sending you some, some love. And speaking of loves, this is filled out by, this is from the love survey, <laughs> filled out by somebody who calls himself 23-year-old infant with a BFA and a driver's license. Love it. I love wearing a tidy black t-shirt with Wrangler work jeans and my winter boots. This outfit makes me feel handsome and reminds me of the photos I've seen of my dad skateboarding when he was my age. He and I don't always get along, but I love seeing traits of his masculinity in myself now that I am more comfortable about my gender presentation. I love the serious look in my girlfriend's eyes when she cuts my hair and how fresh I feel when she's done trimming the scraggly bits of curls that grow on the back of my neck. (laughs) That's my favorite thing about getting a haircut too. I could give a shit up for the most part, about what the rest of it looks like, but just getting rid of of those little baby hairs on the back, the the baby mullet. Uh, I love when coffee just hits perfectly. I will have done nothing I don't do every other morning when making it, but for some reason it feels extra good to sip from my mug that day. I love when a book or a film makes me feel hope for humanity, like we are not in this alone. And then in parentheses, I get this feeling often from your podcast, Paul. Thank you. You are welcome. Thank you for saying that. I love when people who are not, quote, too cool, unquote, uh, to be visibly excited. I love that, too. I love watching people just unselfconsciously geek out over something when they when they go double rainbow. I love watching pigeons use their tails to balance themselves on telephone wires, especially when there are many pigeons huddled together on the same line because then they seem to move their tails in sync, responding to the wind. I have never noticed that. Uh, I love the woman who pours bags of uncooked rice from the Dollar Tree around the trees in the park by my house. The pigeons love her, her too. I think she keeps them fed through the long Chicago winter. I love Halloween in the Midwest. I love the smell, or at least I love remembering the smell of Halloween in the Midwest. It's like when the decaying leaves, you can first start to smell them, or at least smell them turning. I don't know, it's been so long, I can't remember. I forget the timing. I also, in hindsight, loved the feeling when you debated on whether or not to knock on it was usually like an old person that lived by themselves that you know there were rumors they're crazy or they stabbed somebody one time and you would like dare each other to go knock and then they're usually like oh here honey here's a butterfinger uh i love learning a new soup recipe i love waking up in the middle of the night to the sound of a storm outside and falling back asleep knowing that I'm safe and warm inside, the rain tapping harmlessly against my window. Oh, that is such a good one. I love that garlic exists. Same with onions. I love moments where I've barely started a recipe, 
Just put onions in a pan with olive oil, and this simple combination is enough to pull my little sister out of her room and prompt her to say, that smells good. What is that? This happens almost every time I cook. I hate when it's icy outside, but I love the camaraderie this prompts in strangers. Someone further along the sidewalk will call out, careful, it's slippery there. Or someone else will laugh with you as you slowly pass each other on the street, shuffling at a snail's pace to avoid landing on your butt. It reminds me that we are really all just trying to get where we're going safely, and for the most part, we want that for each other too. Now, those are awesome. Thank you for that. This is uh, a shame and secret survey, and this was filled out by a gender-fluid person who refers to themselves as ceremonial dog fart. Not sure. I'm not sure why it would be ceremonial, but I'm, I'm going to go with you on that one. They identify as straight. They're in their 30s. Uh, they say that they were raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. I would say that it, it was more than that, but... Um, They've never been sexually abused. They've been physically and emotionally abused. And they write, I've always felt shamed by my parents. And as a young child, my father used corporal punishment, which I have only one direct memory of involving a severe beating that I will detail later, because that is what it was until two days ago. I do have memories of being threatened with a belt and a splintery old yard stake. Any positive experiences with abusers? They are my parents, and in spite of their feelings, failings, they've both done a lot and sacrificed to ensure my well-being. I do not doubt that they love me and wish me to be well. It's just that their idea of me being well and mine are very different, and I feel that who I really am and who I really want to be has never been acknowledged by me. Darkest thoughts. I have violent fantasies. When I feel wronged, I will fantasize about torturing and or murdering the person I feel has wronged me. I also occasionally have rape fantasies where I am the perpetrator. I have never and will never act on these thoughts. The only violence I have ever willfully engaged in were a couple of schoolyard fights as a teenager. Uh, darkest secrets. Uh, scaring a puppy that I had. Uh, when Sally was a puppy, I was alone in the backyard playing with her. I have no memory of my thought process, but I did a terrible and cruel thing and tied her tightly to a tree with her leash and started beating the ground around her with a pole I found in the yard and yelling at her, obviously terrifying the poor dog. My father, who had been watching the entire episode from inside the house, came storming out and grabbed me. He dragged me to the tree where he put the collar around my neck, threw the leash over a branch, and lifted me off my feet, hanging me while he beat the shit out of me with the pole. I don't remember any apologies, but my childhood memories are pretty fuzzy. I do not recall any physical abuse after this incident. I think my father learned a little something from this, but still I was terrified of him for decades. Now I know that I could beat him to death with my bare hands if I wanted to, which brings me a little comfort. 
The only time I ever recall talking about it in my life was this Monday when I shared the incident with my wife after a therapy session, in which I, for the hundredth time, thought about the incident and failed to share it out of shame. My wife was not a big fan of my father before. Now I fear for his physical safety if they're in the same room together. I love that woman. Smiley face. Man, that is one of the fucking worst incidents of physical abuse that I have read doing this podcast. Holy shit. Holy shit. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I like pretty vanilla sex with women who tend to range a little towards chubby and with a colorful personality, and most of my fantasies tend towards that. I don't really like talking about sex, but I am not uncomfortable in this context. The bit earlier about the occasional rape fantasies carries some shame. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone that you haven't been able to? I would like to drive my, in the parentheses, career career criminal prosecutor, father, out to a tree in the wilderness where I had laid out a leash and a pole and asked him, what crime exactly would I be committing if I were to string you up by the neck and beat the shit out of you with that pole? Then I would turn around and drive away because I want him to be afraid of me. What, if anything, do you wish for? Well, if we're granting wishes, I wish for a long, happy, peaceful life for myself and everyone else in the world. Have you shared these things with others? I shared a lot of this with my wife. She was more understanding than I expected and has been a tremendous help in dealing with all of the emotions this is stirring up. How do you feel after writing these things down? Better. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Share with someone you trust. Share anonymously. Share. You'll feel better. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. This is from the Love Survey, and this is filled out by Dr. B, and they write, I love coming home to a clean house after being out of town for a week. I love opening the new wall calendar for the next year and beginning to write all the appointments and vacations down. I love flossing my teeth. I love being the connector between people and places so they can achieve their goals and purposes in life. I love coming home and my husband is gone because he works from home, never leaves, exclamation point, even if for 20 minutes. I love holding my six-year-old little girl to comfort her and she begins to pat my back, comforting me. I love pulling up the driveway to my mom's house. I love eating the rest of the Kraft macaroni and cheese with a spatula straight from the pot when my kids tell me they are full. That, that is quite an image. That is awesome. And then finally, this is from the What Has Helped You survey. And this is uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself anonymous. Uh, what are your issues or struggles? Depression, anxiety, panic attacks, and chronic pain. What has helped you deal with them? New Year's Day, 2023. A beautiful day in California. So clear and bright after a week of rain. Maybe it's a good sign. Maybe it's just another day. 
I'm trying to be hopeful and intentional without having expectations. I'm trying to let my thoughts and memories and feelings flow without getting too attached to their meaning. I'm having more days where I don't feel the familiar ache as strongly as I usually do. The ache for the last place or the next place. The deep longing for what used to be or what could have been. I've tried to let go of the idea that everything might be different if I didn't have mental illness. Sometimes it feels like I am so behind, like my life has not even begun yet. But I'm learning that the awe-inspiring beginnings and endpoints that we see on social media and in the news are mostly fabricated or enhanced. Epiphanies, transformations, fresh starts, they don't happen in a magical moment or on a certain date on a calendar like New Year's. They happen so slowly, so gradually, that they are almost imperceptible. The change and the growth happens naturally if you remain open to things, trudging through each day with its ups and downs, letting all of the versions of yourself happy and sad, hopeful and broken, angry and loving, just coexist without pushing them down or grasping at them. There may never be an end point to the grief and anger you feel from past trauma. It will bubble up and spill over, knocking you to your knees in childlike fits on random days, and you will beg the pain to stop. But this is also true. Some days, you will go for a walk and feel the sun on your face and feel alive and connected to everything. You will keep going. It is the only thing you have to do in this life. You will put one foot in front of the other, day after day, in different places, and at different times, through all kinds of emotions and obstacles. You can feel strong and grateful, or weak and sad, as long as you just keep showing up. Let yourself feel lost, because no one is found. And try to stay soft, because life is hard. Wow. Wow. Thank you so much for that. That is so... That is such a great reminder. Such a great reminder. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And uh, if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, just never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.